This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian Carolyn Rasmussen. Carolyn joined me in the studio to discuss Melbourne's power couple of the 20th century, Morris and Doris Blackburn. Her book is called The Blackburns, Private Lives, Public Ambitions. Historian Carolyn Rasmussen, and she's written a most wonderful book, The Blackburns, Private Lives, Public Ambitions. It's a joint biography of two very important figures in Australian political life, um, and it's uh, of course, socialist barrister Morris Blackburn and uh, Doris Hordern, that was her maiden name. And of course, when she married uh, Morris, she was known as Doris Blackburn. And both were members of parliament, different parliaments at various points in their careers. But that was not the, that was certainly not it at all. Um, they were engaged in a range of other political activities and activism across their lives. So I'm really delighted now to welcome in the studio Carolyn Rasmussen. Hi there, Carolyn. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Now, this book is, well, it's beautiful <laughs> in terms of the physical yes. substance that I was referring to. It's quite weighty. Um, and when I received it, I thought, wow, they've paid appropriate respect physically to the words that are in this book, because really, this is a, such a extensive history and biography of two very important figures who probably aren't necessarily understood in the comprehensive way of which you've laid out their lives and their contributions to public life. In terms of your career as a historian, you, I know yourself, have focused on the labour movement. How did you move into knowing about and getting to know these two great characters of Australian life? Oh, well, I grew up in the uh, in Coburg, which uh, the electorate of Burke, as it was called originally, was covered by them. So the Blackburns were much admired in my family. Uh, they, they were names that I already knew. Uh, Coburg also has a particularly interesting political history in independent labour, uh, an idea that the pure socialist labour was more important than the kind of Tammany Hall sort of labour politics um, of the inner city. And when I went back to university as a postgraduate student, the, the particular characteristics of the area I grew up in seemed tailor-made for me to write about. And so actually the first thing I wrote was a, a, my master's, uh, my honours thesis is a, a biography of a state representative for Coburg, Charlie Mutton, who had been who had defied the party and been an independent Labor from 1940 through until he was readmitted to the party. So the Blackburns were known to me uh, as soon as I started work on this. Both, but both of them. But of course, as a teenager in the 1950s and 60s, I knew about Doris anyway, and so she was something of a, a proto-feminist. And, you know, I, I saw her as a sort of person that I wanted to grow up to be like from mm. quite well, as, even as a teenager. So when I found them in my work everywhere, uh, it was obvious I found that um, I went to Tasmania to stay with their daughter who had all the papers down there. And once I started working on the papers, I was completely hooked. Mm. 
There was going to be no escape for me in the long run. <laughs> um, few people perhaps know firsthand the wonder of looking through the personal papers of big, important figures of history, yeah. and I can't even imagine what it would have been like. But for you, what was the type of wonder or um, excitement that you felt when you were looking through the papers of Doris and Morris? Oh, it was it was an extraordinary sensation of. Of, of looking into people's lives. But the, the most absolutely engaging aspect of this was their courtship letters. They wrote to each other for something like 18 months before they got married, uh, sometimes twice, sometimes three times a day, discussing their how much they loved each other, how much they missed each other, their future plans, but also all of their political activities were also part of this conversation. The only deeply frustrating thing about these letters is that the dreaded sentence, I will see you tonight, dear, <laughs> which is the Friday letter. Yes. And so freak, or I'll tell you all about it when I see you on the weekend. <laughs> Perhaps those uh, tantalising moments were part of what kept me completely engaged. I needed to know what was going on on the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, but there was another... I was only in my 20s. Um, there was something slightly, uh, should I really be reading these? They were so yeah. incredibly personal. But that sort of makes them feel like, yeah, that, that's just completely engaging. And all mm. of the other documents as well. It's just There's something quite transporting. You, you're taken back into time. I mean, it's about handwriting. It's about the feel of the paper. It's about the look of the typefaces. It's all those things. Yes. And you highlight, you know, some scribbles and notes in margins of yes. different papers. It really does add a lot of richness and it's not only what's put in, but what's left out. Yes. So many different things that are revealing in primary documents. I do want to just quickly read out some brief quotes from those love letters because they are quite inspiring. I wish that people today would <laughs> do this, but I don't think it's likely. Well, maybe in their wedding vows, but not in a letter or a text message. But this is from Morris. He writes, I love you, Doris. I think I worship you. You embody for me all that is good. You are the moon, which is drawing up the currents of my being. It is high tide with me now. I mean, that is so poetic. <laughs> and then just so it's fair, um, I'll just put a little bit from Doris who quotes poetry and she also was very interested in literature and poetry herself. She talks about, Dear boy, never, never dream for a moment of putting aside the work that lies before you and me and all of us. You could not do it. We both know that. You could not shut your eyes to suffering and depression any more than I could. Poverty, work, trouble, sorrow, if they are to be our lot, oh man, I can face them with my hand in yours. I can face them smiling. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it almost encapsulates their outlook or their philosophy. Yeah. It was, it was, a, they was, they were political soulmates as yeah. well as, you know, madly, crazily in love. I think, um, I mean, they're only the same age as my grandparents, so they were not that distant to me. But I think one of the things that also struck me was how incredibly modern they were in their responses to each other. You know, there mm. are episodes where you can see that they... Dis I think at one point she says rather firmly, I think we should spend a little bit more time reading... <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> so you get the sense that things are getting a little out of hand from yeah. time to time. Um, so yeah, they they love being with each other, and they they can't they can't bear being apart. Yes, and you talk about books and their love of reading. Yes, and you also highlight the differences. And similarities in education, of course. Morris had greater access to higher education than Doris did. But in terms of the books that they were exposed to, there was one particular bookstore that seemed to be a place of congregation for many in Melbourne, uh, which I had never heard of. I'd really love to know more about the Book Lovers Library in Collins Street, Melbourne, which fascinatingly was run by Elsie Champion, who was related to Vita Goldstein. Yes, she's a sister of Vita Goldstein, yes. What was that bookstore, the Book Lovers Library, like? The Book Lovers Library was... It was a library which uh, was a circulating library. People came and because uh, Elsie Champion, her husband, Henry Hyde Champion, he was an English socialist who'd come to Australia and had a significant role in the... Melbourne, Melbourne before the war was just fizzing with ideas, with books, with people, all different sorts of um, forms of socialism and progressive ideas. And that bookshop became the place where everybody came to talk. It was quite close to the Women's Political Association coffee rooms, which where you could take coffee. And so people went there to get their, their magazines, their, their latest literature. The, they were importing um, books, particularly from the United States, but also pamphlets, leaflets, magazines, you know, and everybody who was interested in progressive ideas bumped into each other and it was also a place of art and literature and music mm. so it was the art people who were the literati who were there as well the poets and the uh, and the writers of more creative writers i think yes and yeah and elsie champion was a very outgoing and charming woman who people loved to to be there mm. and they always employed someone to help people choose their books Yes, and I believe Doris was employed there? Yes, yes. Yes. She was. It's fascinating all the interconnections between these key people in history because you say that Elsie was very charming and, of of course, Vida has been known, Vida Goldstein, to be very, very charming and commanding a presence. Um, And then we see Doris's involvement with Vita yes. Goldstein in her many campaigns but particularly looking at the campaign for Kuyong, the federal yes. seat of Kuyong, whereby she was um, a co-campaign secretary with her former teacher Selena Hooper who was such an important influence on her. Yes, she was. In terms of that involvement with Vita Goldstein, not only in her campaigns but the interconnected areas like the Woman Voter newspaper, which she was really important and played a key role in as well. How did that influence Doris's trajectory and life, being exposed to such strong feminists who were, you know, very much there to protect women's rights and encourage women to to grasp the vote that they had been granted finally? Oh, it was a perfect political apprenticeship. Doris, from obviously from quite an early age, had a restless sense that things needed to be improved for women. I mean, her mother was also a, a, a quite a, a feisty. Uh, she was a very she was active in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and had very strong views about the rights of women too. 
but Doris working on that campaign for Kuyong, which proved to be the one where the media closed ranks against her most comprehensively, which was, of course, a sign of just how dangerous they subtly considered she'd become. Mm. Uh, I mean, those uh, people she was working with, those older women who were campaign um, veterans, getting the publications out, getting everybody organised, speaking or not speaking, depending, making sure everything was working, and just... uh, going out on the streets herself and selling the woman voter and, and feeling the, the, the enthusiasm and support as well as the hostility. I mean, she just honed her skills, I think, and her, her beliefs in what kind of feminist she wanted to be. By the end of it, I think she understood that she didn't actually wish to be exclusively, um, as Vita Goldstein did, a woman's party. Um, but that didn't matter very much at that point. But she felt that the attempt to appeal just to women, I think she learnt quite early, was part of the failure of voters' campaign. Um, she couldn't disconnect the middle-class women from the middle-class party. Yes. Um, well, Avina, part of her aim was to become the first female elected to... Uh, the federal parliament Mm. and she tried in both the senate and the house of representatives multiple times it is really interesting to me then that doris blackburn becomes the second woman ever elected to the house of representatives federally and of course enid lyons being the first in the lower house and dorothy tangney to be the first in the senate and they were both part of major parties those two women so I was particularly interested that uh, we saw Doris not be tied to a major party but instead be an independent Labor candidate could you share what that really means and why she put herself in that camp well uh, I mean I think I, I do suggest that she is in fact the realization of Vita's dream and it took a long time for that to happen she's independent largely because the Labor Party had moved so far to the right in the course of the 1930s. Uh, She and Morris both uh, have a very international focus. Doris, the the, the strongest theme in Doris's life up until she goes to Parliament is very much her commitment to peace and work for peace uh, as a person who was very strongly committed to collective security as the best way to avoid the Second World War. She was therefore out of sympathy with the Labor Party of that time and that was reinforced by the fact that they've moved into the Coburg area which is in itself uh, a very uh, well-organised and strongly ideologically focused independent Labor. In fact, they see themselves as the, the pure Labor. Mm. So she has she's she's there in an area which is more socialist left, as we would call it now. Yes. And so she goes to Parliament as an independent member because the organisation which had been supporting Morris and Charlie Mutton is a strong political organisation and that's really the secret of her getting into Parliament against mm-hmm. the sta- sitting Labor, against this sort of... It's a blue-ribbon Labor seat. Um, and that's why she's independent. But I think she's able to stand like that courageously alone and walk that what is a lonely path 
because of what she learned back there with Vita Goldstein. She she learned to be tough mm. and principled. And then, of course, she and Morris both are very committed to what matters are the principles. You don't compromise. You don't. You, you, you need to be strategic, but there is always some point where you do what you think is right and you work for the policies that you think matter, even if that means, as in Parliament with the woman a rocket range, as they say, she's a lone woman yeah. against the rocket range. She so passionately believed that that was the wrong thing to do um, that she would put that ahead of staying in office or any number of other things. I think, mm-hmm. I think that, that capacity to be a, a strong, lone political person um, and, and demonstrate, and she really, really did want to demonstrate to women that if you stand up straight and strong, you can... She's, she's an optimist. Yes, and they both, Morris and Doris, seem like optimists and at times idealists. Idealists, yeah. Yeah, and they... But just to be... I think yeah. I think it's important that the optimism as well as the idealism because, mm. you know, she, she in particular just never gave up. She always found something to do that she thought would make a difference. Uh, I think Blackburn became sick and a little despondent in the end, but I don't think Doris ever did. Mm. It's really interesting that couple um, approach to big principle issues because uh, when Morris was in the state parliament, um, he had won a by-election to get his seat and then the conscription campaigns came around in the in World War One, which was extremely divisive, at times violent. It was really a huge moment in Australian history and there were two referendum campaigns or votes and the second vote was in December 1917 and uh, his election campaign and the election was in the November, the the month preceding. So it all kind of culminated, but he was actually one of many figures, including Archbishop Mannix, who was not for conscription. They were very strongly anti-conscription. Could you share a bit about Morris's involvement in the anti-conscription campaigns? Yes. Morris um, found himself, uh, he personally felt very strongly that no person should be conscripted to take another person's life. Uh, he, he also believed very strongly that the British, if he had to choose between British culture and German culture, he, he felt that British culture was... The rule of law was stronger and in particular it was less... Um, he, he was very concerned that everybody have freedom of religion, freedom of thought... So that meant that he very reluctantly supported the British case in the war, but when conscription was advocated, he was activated to work against that. Uh, he had a um, his eloquence, his passion. He was so um, he was everywhere, and he really was something of a figurehead of the campaign in Victoria. But he also travelled to South Australia and various places. And he brought upon himself a great deal of hostility and anger, partly because he was actually the member for one of the seats that had the highest yes vote in Australia, Essendon, for for conscription. Mm. So here we have a member who's campaigning against it. So as you can see, the passions are running very high. Um, He was also very concerned that 
Germans not be discriminated against and his stands in, in um, support of the Lutheran schools and so on was also seen as an act of treachery, support for the enemy, um, treasonous in fact and he wasn't bothered by any of that. He, he really stood up very straight as of course most people on that side did mm. but his position was such that he lost his seat in Parliament and that was a kind of a very big price to pay in terms of his personal career and his personal life. But he, he accepted that. And he was able to stand tall and strong like that because Doris was, was with him 100% of the way. Um, she, she was completely with him on that score. And, and she was always standing beside him on those matters of principle. Morris really put his colours very closely around socialism and yes. said that um, he believed in socialist ideals and the system and, as you write, um, he was fully persuaded that only socialism could stop the war, quote, by removing the causes of war, and that was around World War One. Yes. So we were talking about idealism then, that's kind of <laughs> one example. Yes. So in terms of that really strong political perspective and viewpoint how did that impact upon his career or life as a barrister well his life as a barrister hadn't been going particularly well before the war because as a known socialist uh, there are a range of people who wouldn't give briefs to a socialist barrister anyway uh, he he didn't he didn't really he his the most important work he did was he worked with Sir Leo Cusson on the consolidation of the Victorian statutes. And that's, of course, what gave him an incredible insight into how the, the appropriate formulation of good law, which is something he cared about a great deal, the, the, the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of good legislation, really excited him. Um, but after this, uh, his role in the conscription campaigns, it was clear that as a barrister he had no future at all. And that is when in 1919, not long after he lost the election. He uh, handed in his, his barrister's certificate, so to speak, and set himself up as a solicitor, Morris Blackburn and Company, which in 1919, which is exactly 100 years ago, uh, in association with another known uh, legal political figure in Victorian history, which is Bill Slater. Bill Slater at that stage wasn't fully qualified and he was actually a member of parliament already, Mm. He'd been elected as a... So it starts out... He starts out with Bill Slater, um, but Bill Slater, of course, leaves in the mid-20s to set up his own law firm. Yes. Uh, and as a solicitor, it was a law firm specifically devoted to the interests of the trade union movement and to those who couldn't, would not ordinarily be able to afford legal representation. And... It, it was a nice um, symbiosis when he was back into Parliament between supporting law that would, in particular, workers' compensation law and a legal firm which would then put that sort of law into practice and support people um, working under that law. But the income to the law firm was mostly provided by the, by the big unions whose cases he advised on once they went to the arbitration court.
Yes, and you highlight his commitment to the trade union movement and trying to empower unionists to be able to advocate for themselves in that arbitration system. I was particularly interested in this idea that not only was he an activist, but he saw himself as an educator and that giving people knowledge really was a leveller in a way and gave others' power to be able to change things and also advocate for themselves. Yes, he, he was a very, very... Uh, the, the power of education, he's, he saw himself as an educator very much. In fact, so did Doris. This mm. Education would unlock the potential of, of ordinary people and he was actually very successful at it. I, I interviewed, when I was talking to people in the, of the Coburg branch of the ALP who'd known him personally... Several of them were very quick to tell me when they would invite him out to speak often and explain issues and, and, and talk about all sorts of things to do with the labour movement. And, and they said, you know, when Morris came and talked, you, you went away and you thought about it for days. There was mm. this feeling that he made, he made things clear. People felt they understood better when they'd listened to Blackburn explain things. So, and he was very in demand. And actually, you probably notice in the book, in Parliament as well, as one of the very small number of people with legal expertise sitting in Parliament, the, the other members of Parliament found Blackburn's expositions on the law extremely helpful. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I was interested that one of his early passions was constitutional law, which is, it doesn't really get people that particularly excited normally. No, it doesn't. But he could make it interesting. Yeah, I would believe that. And also, interestingly, there's that link between Morris and Doris in the sense that she informally studied psychology and educational theories and um, that she really thought that it was so important to ensure that children, all children, had the value of education at a really early age. And also, when I was Googling and looking her up, I saw that a preschool is even named after her. (laughs) That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing, really, to see her influence that still pervades. Oh, absolutely. And I think she belongs to that that strand of feminism that it's a marriage of feminism and her peace commitment, a commitment to peace, uh, which sees that the next generation is the hope. She's very very engaged with the the new education movement Mm. in between the wars with progressive education and the idea that there was a form of non-competitive schooling that would allow children to grow up to be natural peacemakers rather than natural warmongers and that if we could if we could get the children young enough they would grow up to be anti-militaristic i mean that's the general idea and preschool she was a trained teacher uh, a trained yes. primary school teacher, uh, but preschool children were her special passion. Apparently she had a special affinity. They just adored her. And mm. that kindergarten was probably the thing that gave her most pleasure in life overall, I think. Uh, it was set up in the war years up near her house in Kernans Hill, Pascoe Vale. Yeah. And it's still very much uh, alive and... Um, 
Yeah, and people know who she is, who yes. she was. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and, well, it's great that this book adds to that understanding. Yeah. There is also now a building in Canberra named for her as well. Really? Which building is the, that? The, the new uh, Social Security, Social Services building that yeah. was opened in 2013, I think, has been very appropriately named the Doris Blackburn Building. That's wonderful. One other element of Doris's career I wanted to touch on was uh, her advocacy which you mentioned before around the Woomera rocket testing range that she really jumped on when she heard of its development and the proposal and so when she entered federal parliament as the second ever female member of the House of Representatives she focused a lot of her attention on that issue in her maiden speech could you share a bit about what made her maiden speech so special at the time well Doris as a person whose primary motivating force was actually the desire to end war or to prevent war and to produce friendly relations between all nations but she had a long, because um, of their involvement with Fitzroy, Doris had been engaged with the Indigenous population of Melbourne for a long time and the conditions of in Aboriginal people was a strong strand in all of the organisations she was involved with. So when she found herself in Parliament and realised that the proposal to test rockets, guided missiles in Woomera, which was an area of Central Desert, Aboriginal people. That was just seemed to be the issue that was tailor-made to define the rest of her life in a way, I think. She's a very fine speaker. She does a lot of research. She's very passionate. Uh, and so she, she got up in Parliament to challenge this was just going to slip through. Had Doris not been in the House of Representatives at that point in time, I, it's interesting, I, it's, she was... The, she was able to be a spokesperson in a very loud space um, not that there wasn't agitation elsewhere but mm-hmm. Doris became Doris became the figurehead but her eloquence was quite extraordinary um, she she demonstrated a, a, a capacity for a sort of down-to-earth effective persuasive way of speaking although of course she didn't change anything by the way she spoke she brought the issue to to the front and I, I think probably these things take a long time to have an effect. But what she demonstrated was that you, you could still make a difference, even if it's only you sitting as an independent member, sitting on the cross benches. And the message was out there in the media because mm. the second woman in Parliament was speaking about this issue. Um, and I, I think that was quite inspirational, really. That that is a great speech. That's why they put it. Well, it's actually it's a two part speech. <laughs> and why did they break it up over two different parts? Oh, some of it's just to do with parliamentary procedures and yeah. sitting days, and some of it is was a sort of an attempt to make it go away. <laughs> yes, a strategy. Uh, which she, yes, which she didn't. She managed to avoid that happening. Mm. But some of it is just the procedural matters. You mentioned there Indigenous Australians. She set up the Aborigines Advancement League and really focused a lot of her attention on the advancement of Australia's first peoples. Yes. Was that something that was particularly rare or noticeable in that period that she started it? There's a very strong development happening. I mean, she tries to encourage Pastor Doug Nichols to actually stand for Parliament. There is um, a, a groundswell of support 
for Indigenous people uh, right across the left of politics in Australia, particularly in um, New South Wales, Victoria and, and South Australia. The problem, the problem is this is the Cold War mm. setting in and because the left is so involved in issues to do with Aborigines, everything gets muddled up. But the idea that uh, in Victoria uh, they, they need to, to get them off these reserves, I mean, um, it's not that Aborigines didn't have the vote here in Victoria, they did. But So she's part of a group, there is a mm. series of them, and um, she and it's, it's Gordon Bryant, they, they feel that the two of them, there is this feeling that there's a need for a new organisation, there's a group of them, that should advocate but also support. So there's not just an advocacy body originally, one of her other favourite activities is making jam. And Doug Nichols had set up a hostel for Aboriginal girls coming to the city to work in Northcote. And Doris is very, very involved in fundraising for for that project. Um, and all of those things all come together with the idea that we need a body which can advocate effectively and efficiently on behalf of Indigenous people. And, of course, within a short space of time, it's, there's the federal body formed. Mm. And this is all the beginning of the grassroots organising itself into um, a series of uh, forces moving together, which will ultimately lead to the 1967 referendum and the removal of all sorts of disabilities that Indigenous people were subject to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the listeners, we're placing this in 1957, which is when she founded the yeah. Aborigines Advance. But she'd been working League. on that sort of thing for many years. Many years before yeah. that, yeah. And she entered Parliament in the late 40s. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so was 46 a- to 49. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why did she lose her seat? Why was it so short lived? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, she's basically Labor. Yes. And there's a huge tsunami against the Chifley government. So to some mm. extent, she swept aside with the sort of movement against the Labor Party. Um, the secondly, the, the resonance of the independent Labor tag had lessened. Well, there was a redistribution of the seat so that whereas she'd represented all working-class areas in Burke, Coburg and Brunswick. When they split Burke into two, Burke and Wills spelled differently, the other Burke. Yes. Uh, she chose to stand for Wills, which was Coburg, where she lived, but that electorate had been shifted and it was taking in part of Essendon, which was very Liberal voting. Mm. And this time around, the Liberals didn't second preference her to the same extent. So she, she did quite well, but yeah. the... the political landscape had changed. Personally, I think the openness to women was... I think the 50s were closing in. It was a more conservative era. Exactly. Well, if we remember that World War II, it ended, and that was a great period of women taking up up leadership roles, and it certainly opened things up for women, and then, as you say, it started to to close back up again. Yes, it was. It was closing back up, I think. Yeah. 
So just finally, Carolyn, it's been so wonderful speaking oh, with you. you. Yeah. I just wanted to reflect, as you have done in this book, what would you, if you had to say, were their biggest contributions or most, even if they weren't the biggest, perhaps the most influential over time? Because as you say, some things that they did many, many years ago have really taken a while to come to fruition or influence others during history. Were there any particular issues that you think Morris and or Doris really played a pivotal role in? I think Morris in particular is still remains within the Labor pantheon, if you like. Um, John Curtin, with whom he did not get on particularly well, said that he set a standard that all the rest of us would be better to live by. I mean, I think that idea of the intellectual who also um, introduced a lot of practical... Uh, legislation and assistance I think that balance and the man who was always stayed true to principle sometimes that wasn't always to the best of the party but um, I think there is this view that you a, a good political party needs a Morris Blackburn an idealist a purist um, as for Doris I think her contribution was just being there mm. you know if you go back and I mean that's what I think her life is an example of how a woman who set herself to do whatever she could to make the world a little better and a little more peaceful, and she just didn't give up. Uh, wherever she could see some change she could make, uh, she was an advocate, she was an educator, and I think at the grassroots level she was very influential. That's harder to catch in the public in a book, yeah. I think, but it's the, it's the grassroots Doris who then stood up there in Parliament and said, you see? We can do this. We can be here. It's such a great example and no wonder you looked up to her. I, yeah. I can see why, yeah. And she's a real reference point and role model for others. Absolutely. I should also say that I think there's a role model for the current media because mm. the way that uh, Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangi and Doris Blackburn are treated in the media when they're in Parliament is respectful and appropriate. Um, I mean, and that says something about slightly different atmospherics, mm. I think. Yes, it is really interesting to look back at, on Trove at the different newspaper clippings around the women. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually covered that in a lecture I gave to mark the anniversary of the election of Enid Lyons and Dorothy yes. Tangney. And I felt that those clippings were probably one of the most important primary sources I could use apart from autobiographies and papers. Yes, and you will notice how they do tend to concentrate on what they say. Mm. Yes, and how they said it and, and how they said and the it. respect that the they respect. received from mm. their peers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so it, it's a there's a lesson to be seen there, I think. There is. <laughs> Carolyn, it's been absolutely wonderful and an absolute delight to speak with you and I thank you very much for being so generous. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful. As I said, I think it's a great story. Well worth seeing the story in all its detail. Exactly. I agree. And as you may be just becoming aware, we've scratched the surface. There's just so much in their lives to talk about and read about. So do make sure you follow up if you're interested in uh, Carolyn's book, The Blackburns, Private Lives, Public Ambition, which is out through Melbourne University Press. And it's a beautiful hardback book. And I've been speaking with historian Carolyn Rasmussen. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.